would you want Jesus to be your preacher? I know that might sound like a crazy question, but by the end of the podcast, you might be rethinking it. Welcome to the Love First podcast. I'm so thankful that you have joined us. We realize that we are in a polar region, and I don't mean the Polar Express. I don't mean the North Pole or the South Pole. I mean polarization. We've heard this word a lot. We know it's out there. We understand it, but it has become so invasive and so pervasive. We feel like it's kind of somehow got out of control. Polarization in politics is older than America, and it certainly has been a part of our political system since the beginning. That idea of, hey, those are fighting words, that was right there in that first Continental Congress. So it's always been a part of our history. But why is it the way it is now? Why is it dividing families and churches and communities and our nation I believe Jesus has the answer for it, but we're going to explore it through Jesus is our new preacher. Let's get into the conversation. I was thinking, what would it be like if we were on a search committee and we were the people that were going to be helping our church find a new preacher? Now, I realize different church traditions approach this differently. Sometimes people answer like a call to ministry, and sometimes the the denomination will place a preacher in a particular place for a time and then move that person to another assignment for a time. In our church tradition, most often, it has to do with some kind of an interview process, a search process. Now, that might even be true if the preacher is a volunteer from the local community. We might suggest, well, hey, let's do some practice sermons. Let's see if this person connects with our church. But as churches might be uh, a little larger and they might have a part-time or a full-time paid preacher, then that that situation becomes a little more complex. And oftentimes, there's what we call the search committee. So the search committee gets together and they speak with the church and they ask, you know, what are we looking for in a preacher? So try to imagine going back to first century east end of the Mediterranean Sea in this little country of Israel, and we're looking for a preacher. We might start out in Jerusalem because we think, well, man, Jerusalem, that's where the temple is. And somebody else says, ah, come on. We don't want one of those temple-type preachers. We want a person of the earth, a person of the people. We want a synagogue preacher. So you've got people kind of looking for a temple teacher, like a professor, or a synagogue preacher. Someone that's kind of the whole package. You know, a priest and a pastor and a prophet and a preacher and there the search goes. Well, somebody says, hey, you know, I've heard this guy is preaching up in the northern region. 
that's where he's kind of, you know, uh, getting his chops. You know, this is where this guy's preaching his first sermons. And it sounds like he's doing a pretty good job. Really? Well, tell me about him. Well, it seems like he's about 30 years old. Okay, well, that's good because we weren't looking for a teenager, let me tell you. You know, age is a factor here. Yeah, but I heard he's single. Oh. Oh, he doesn't have a family. Oh. Well, no, I don't think that matters. I think the guy's got a pretty good grasp on family. We've heard him say some really good things about family. Well, okay, we'll give him a shot, right? You guys know how this would go. Do we know anything about his family? Yeah, yeah, dad's a carpenter. Uh, it's kind of a strange birth story, I think, if we give him a chance to explain it. I think people will kind of get over maybe a little bit of their trepidation. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, it turns out that his mom... I got pregnant while they were engaged. Oh, oh. But did they repent? Well, I think there's more to it. See, I think there's Holy Spirit involvement. I'm telling you, man, I don't think this is going to fly. Well, let's give the guy a chance, right? We're a search committee. What, what, what harm could there be? Let's give the guy a chance. So we get our group together. We're going to travel up there to Galilee. We're going to kind of be the advance team. We're going to do some reconnaissance, right? We're going to go up there and sit in and maybe sit in the back row of the synagogue and listen in while Jesus preaches and doesn't know we're watching. So we, it takes a few days. I mean, this is quite a trip. And, you know, this is Gilligan's Island travel. There's no, you know, trains and motor cars, not a single luxury. So we make our way up there to Galilee. We hear he's preaching one Sunday at his home church, his home synagogue. This ought to be good, right? So we get there and we're sitting in the back. We're trying to be incognito a little bit. The time comes for the service to start. Someone unwraps a scroll and hands it to Jesus. And here we go, right? We're taking notes. Remember, it's Hebrew, so we're going from right to left, right? We're taking notes on this sermon. And here it comes. He went to Nazareth, Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. At least we can make a note that he was raised right. He stood up to read. The, prof the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. Oh, hey, let's make good notes about this. He starts with scripture. Uh, that's good. Okay. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Ooh, I look down the row at the rest of the team. One of my favorite passages. I love this scripture. Shh, shh. We're listening, right? Because we're a search team for our new preacher. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And we start quoting it quietly whispering because we know this passage. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Ho! Good marks all across. Great scripture, great scripture reading. One of our favorite scriptures, we all agree. And boy, when we check the box on that one, every one of us check, yes. But He's still got to make some application here. 
He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. This is when the real teaching starts back then. See, we stand up to give an authoritative teaching in Western culture. They sat down to give an authoritative teaching. So he sits down. Okay, here he goes. He's going to teach us, right? The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him, just like ours. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What? Today, this scripture comes true for you. What? Well, this is better news than we thought. I mean, this is good news. You do realize that in verse 18, the word for good news is gospel. He's preaching gospel. And the gospel says, good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for prisoners, all the oppressed set free, and this is the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if we were hearing this in December 2020, we would be like, thank you, God, that hopefully that applies to 2021, right? Oh, we're so glad. But today, did we hit the lucky day in the Nazareth synagogue? Is this some special day they've set aside? Should we look under our bench and see if there's a number under there where we would pull it out and we want a prize today? This came true in our hearing. We could tell everyone else liked it too. You see, all spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that dripped from his lips. And some even mentioned his father. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? So here we are. We're the advanced team. You know, we're from Jerusalem, but we're up here, up, up in the north, and we're sitting there, but we can tell everyone in the synagogue loves him because they're all talking. Wow, did you hear that? Did you hear that? And we see other people affirming, man, that's good. Now, see, now we're thinking, okay, man, this guy's got reading skills. He's got preaching skills. He's got application skills. He knows how to preach the gospel, and everybody loves him. So I look down the row and I say, hey, while everybody else is up there saying, who is he, Joseph's son? And, and I look over and I say, yeah, do you think it's okay that he's single? Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think we're going to be fine with that. What about that birth story? I think that's all going to be fine. Man, he's awesome. Do you hear what people are saying? He's great. Looks like we've got our guy. So we're about to, you know, start gathering up our stuff. I mean, it is a long trip home. It's 60-some miles, right? So we got to get a good start. But apparently, he's not done. Jesus said to them, oh, okay. Well, that, no, that's cool. I mean, it was kind of a short sermon. So, you know, all right, he's got a little bit more to say. Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard you did over in Capernaum. Now we notice it's changed in the room. The mood has shifted where everyone was warm and there was a lot of energy and everybody was like, yeah, amen. Oh, this guy's good. Now it's like, hmm, 
go on. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. But you know what? Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath. What? In the region of Sidon. <gasps> Scandal? 27. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, cue the music, the Syrian. Well, now our backs are kind of arched a little bit. We're kind of, you know, we've got our pen and we've got our parchment. You know, what do we write about this? I mean, is this an off-sermon? I mean, did everyone know he was going to kind of off-road with his interpretation here? Is this guy got a little bit of a hermeneutic issue? I mean, where did this go? Well, then it explodes. All the people in the synagogue were furious. When they heard this, they got up and they drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill. And now we're back in Jerusalem and we're actually telling people what happened. People are like, did you hear that Jesus guy? Yeah. How'd it go? Ah, oh, man. I mean, it, well, what happened? Well, I mean, it started out, he read, he preached, people loved it, he kept going. And I mean, you talk about making people mad. I mean, they went nuts. They took him out to the brow of the hill. To the brow of the hill? Yes. Well, what were they going to do with him? Throw him off. They killed him? Well, no. No, they didn't end up killing him. He got away. In fact, he walked through the middle of them and made his way out. Really? What do you say? Well, he preached the gospel. Well, I mean, isn't that perfect? What scripture did he read from? Oh, really famous, special ones, Isaiah and really. But they still were mad. Yeah? About what? Well, I think the part that upset them was it kind of sounded like he was saying that the good news was for everyone. Well, we believe the good news is for everyone. Yeah, but the way he said it, I think that's what set everyone off. Well, what did he say? What he, what he said was, sometimes in the days of the prophets, the people of Israel were of no heart to receive the gospel God was offering them. So the prophets went and they blessed people in other regions. What regions did he mention? Sidon and Syria. Uh, okay. Boy, I can see why that went bad. I, I know why that went south. I, yeah, I probably tanked the sermon, didn't Well, it didn't just tank the sermon. I mean, everybody took him out and wanted to kill him. Really. I wonder why he did that. Well, I'll tell you, I don't know, but it's it sure, as far as we're concerned, he's not our guy. <laughs> you see, when I opened and asked the question, right, would you want Jesus to be your preacher. We might think to yourselves, well, of course, isn't he our teacher? He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our Shepherd. He's our Messiah, 
right? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is our salvation confession. This is our proclamation at baptism that we want a new Lord. We want to die to ourselves and be raised with Christ, right? Isn't that what the Apostle Paul proclaims when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. I mean, nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, oh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we're like, well, of course. But that sermon didn't set well, did it? No. So maybe one of the things we might say to Jesus is, Jesus, we would love for you to be our preacher, but we don't want you preaching everything you said. Like, is there a way that we could kind of agree upon the way that you kind of talk about the gospel? Or could we agree on the parts of what you would say that we don't really want you to say? Now, I can tell you, I have had this experience with Jesus. Let me illustrate. In one of his most famous sermons that we have recorded, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It opens with the Beatitudes. And when Jesus says something like this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. I think, you know, you know, you're right. I've, I've experienced that in my life. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Yep, I can testify. I could testify to that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And because I imagine myself to be pure in heart, I amen. Yep, agreed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And since I feel like I'm satisfied with my level of hunger and my level of thirst, amen. Blessed are the peacemakers. Everybody ought to be a peacemaker. Yay, Jesus. Great sermon. Well, then Jesus says something like this. You do realize that blessed are you when men, you know, revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. And we're looking around like, wait a minute. Did you mean that for me? Or I mean like for someone else. I'm saying to you, that right there became a hang-up for me. Is Jesus talking to me? This Bible that I treasure was given to me by my wife in 2013. I have the Bible my parents got for me when I went away to college. I have the first whole Bible, Old and New Testament, that my wife got for me on the first birthday that we celebrated together after we met 40 years ago. Then I've got another Bible that she gave to me in 1983 when I kind of wore out the first one. And then this one in 2013. But with this one, she surprised me. She went and she asked family members, friends, mentors. They're all listed right here in the cover. And she asked them to send her 
their favorite passages of scripture. And then she went through the whole Bible before she gave it to me and she marked every one of those passages. So as I'm studying for sermons or sharing with someone the message of Jesus, I'll come across those passages. There are many who chose sections of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says something like, hey, when you give, pray, or serve, you make sure that it's not about who's watching. I think to myself, I've done all three of them, worried about who is watching. Maybe you have as well. When he says, hey, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Sometimes I realize I had done a whole lot more preaching than I had done obeying in a particular teaching in Scripture. That's just the truth. When Jesus says something like, unless you are willing to take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. When Jesus says, if you're praying and in your prayer, you're looking down your spiritual nose at someone else, judging them, elevating yourself, they're going to go home justified. You're going to walk out with the same burden of sin that you walked in with and didn't even know it. When Jesus says something like, you do realize that someday someone might try to kill you and believe that they are doing God's will. When he says, hey, listen, judging, that's just not a, a, not a thing humans ought to get into. We don't mean discernment. But the idea of judging others, kind of like you not realizing that you've got a big old beam in your eye when you're trying to take a sliver out of their eye. He said, just stop. Quit trying to do that. Jesus says, you also realize it's not just my verbal teaching. I taught by example. I taught you how to stand up for people that others would stand on. I taught you how to receive people that others would reject. I taught you how to go into a banquet and purposefully take the chair of the least honor because I taught you that the first will be last and the last will be first. I even told you that God is a pro opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we might say to Jesus, Jesus, you got, you got to understand, all of those teachings, they don't really fit in anymore. They don't really fit into our society because our society really, really kind of celebrates the people that end up on top. You know, the big winner, the people with the most. And Jesus said, yeah, but I show up in the least. And we're like, we know that was one of your teachings. You see, when we think about what does it mean for Jesus to be our preacher, you and I both know that because we love the Lord and we want to serve him, that we feel this tension within. Don't you feel it? The tension between knowing he is our preacher, he is our teacher, he is our Lord. But 
sometimes his message is hard to handle. His message and his lifestyle developed around him what I am going to call unavoidable polarization. Unavoidable polarization. Now, I'm going to come back to a different kind of polarization in a moment, but you notice that in the synagogue sermon in Nazareth, Jesus, just by the fact that he honored Scripture, honored the story of the prophets, he had unavoidable polarization. Because those who could have looked at those stories and thought, wow, that is what happened with Elijah. That is what happened with Elisha. Huh, that's right there in the Bible. I've never even thought about it. I've never even considered it. Lord, tell me more. For those people, there was no polarization. But for those who thought to themselves, wait a second. He is suggesting that the gospel is for everyone, including the people that we've marked off the list. Oh, no. Nope. That is not happening in our synagogue. That is not the sermon we're going to listen to in the synagogue. So by Jesus applying scripture God's way, he had a form of unavoidable polarization. Look with me at John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, there's a feast of the Jews, and Jesus' brothers are trying to get Jesus to go up to this feast. So now, rather than the search team going from the south to the north, it's Jesus and his brothers coming from the north down to the south to this feast in Jerusalem. When they remark that the reason Jesus needs to go is because that's what public figures do, Jesus says, I'm not going. But Jesus does go to the feast later But Jesus is going not to be a public figure, but to do what the Son of God came to do. We're going to pick up, if you'll notice, in verse 9. After this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, but not publicly, but in secret. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly because they feared the people. Look with me, if you would, at verse 25. At that point, some of the people in Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Jesus teaches them further, and in verse 30, it says, At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? When the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him, they went to the chief priests, and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. But the temple guards get back. 
They've heard the sermon and they decide not to arrest him. Jesus keeps on preaching. And as he finishes preaching in verse 40, it says, on hearing his message, some of the people says, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he's the Messiah. Still others said, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Now let's let that settle in. The people were divided because of Jesus. Had Jesus done anything wrong? Had Jesus said anything that was not true? No. But you see, what Jesus was doing was Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And he was the epicenter of this division between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, the ways of heaven and the ways of the earth. That's why back in chapter 6, when the divisions around Jesus started to pick up steam, it says many people walked away and left him. And he turned to his disciples and said, are you going to leave as well? You see, there's a form of what we will call unavoidable polarization. If Jesus was going to be who he was, if he was going to fulfill the mission he came to fulfill, if he was going to, as the scripture says, be named Jesus because he would save his people from their sins, if that baby born in the manger that we set aside this time of the year to celebrate was going to be heaven's preacher on earth, then it was inevitable that people would be divided because of him. But you said you were going to mention another form of polarization. Yes. The other form of polarization is unnecessary polarization. You see, Jesus wasn't a polarizing figure because he was abrasive to people. He mistreated people. He put people down. He wasn't a polarizing figure because he was trying to get glory for himself and he was pushing and shoving to kind of get to the front of the line. He wasn't the one who was trying to steal the spotlight. That was unnecessary polarization. It wasn't like Jesus to respond to someone in such a way that it dehumanized or decimated their very humanity. You see, Jesus' polarization was unavoidable because the kingdom of heaven was hitting square at the problem that redemption came to solve. And that was that our hearts have been filled with the ways of the world. So what did Jesus do? Well, what if we went back to Luke chapter 4? He said, I came to tell people good news. I came to let people know that God 
is here to help. Later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus goes to a town called Nain and he happens upon a funeral. Luke gives us a description of the setting. It's a widow who has now lost her son. Breathe that in for a moment. Because as we come into the Christmas season with COVID raging around the world, just yesterday, one of our dear friends lost her mother. Two days ago at breakfast, one of my friends told me five of his classmates that he graduated from high school with have died. In our own church, in families, in church families, we're suffering. People are hurting. People are trying to figure out how to say goodbye to their loved one, how to start this mourning and grieving process, and they couldn't even be with them in the hospital, and now their friends can't gather around them to support them for a funeral. You see, like this woman, Many families have lost more than one loved one. I know of a dear friend who during COVID has lost three family members. My guess is, is that you know someone through your work, your school, your community, your church, or your family. A story of loss. The people of that town are all surrounded around this woman they're trying to help. Have you tried to help? Have you ever felt helpless while you're trying to help? Have you thought to yourself, come on, COVID. Quit taking life and quit taking our opportunity to help. Have you felt it? We feel it. But what would the kingdom of God do? Well, Unnecessary polarization might be to get into an argument with someone about whether or not to wear a mask. One of our friends, who's a nurse, who lost her younger grandmother to COVID, very kindly, sweetly, gently appealed on Facebook in the great grief of losing her grandmother, that as a nurse said, please, please wear a mask. Couldn't we, with hearts wide open, sit with that nurse and say, yeah. Why, why would we be polarized about that? Why would we argue about that? You bet just for your sake, no matter what I think of it, for your sake, yes. For someone else's sake, yes. I was in an elevator. I got off the elevator. I was the only one in it. As I stepped off, there were two women standing there waiting to get on the elevator. One of the women had a mask on. The other one didn't. The one who didn't have a mask on got into the elevator and invited the other one in. The one with the mask said, no, thank you. The woman said, no, it's okay. There's distancing. She said, no, thank you. I overheard the woman standing outside with the mask gently say, I'm taking care of my mom who's in chemo treatments. I just can't risk it. 
I watched a transition. The woman in the elevator grabbed the door. She fumbled around in her purse. She pulled out her mask and she put her mask on. Because now she thought, why would I create distance between me and this woman? I don't know if she kept wearing her mask after that, but I witnessed that where someone said, that's unnecessary polarization. When Jesus got to that funeral, he went right up to that to, to the people that were carrying the young man on the funeral bier. And the Bible says that Jesus did something. He reached out and touched him. Now you bear in mind, that was not acceptable. That was not acceptable. That was potentially polarizing. But by touching that young man, he humanized the grief of the situation. He stepped into that woman's life, into that woman's grief. He stepped into her whole story, not a snapshot, not a moment. He wasn't looking for the law of Scripture to give him an out so he didn't have to serve her. He stepped into it. He stepped into it with gentleness kindness and willingness. And in doing so, stepping in, he raised that young man from the dead. The Bible says he gave him back to his mother. But here's what I want you all to hear. The crowd that was watching said this, God has come to help his people. You see, rather than taking that as a moment for unnecessary polarization, they took it as a moment to come together, to wrap their arms around someone in their community that was hurting, to say to that woman, we don't cast you aside because you're a widow. We don't cast you aside as if somehow you have bad luck, bad karma. We don't want to get too close to you. You're a person of tragedy. You're a modern day Job. No, they gathered around her trying to help. Jesus steps up, does something unconventional, but they recognize it as the helpful compassionate presence of the living God. You see, in this season, I would like to appeal to us to let go of the things that lean into unnecessary polarization, unnecessary divisions between people, the unnecessary friction that hurts or wounds relationships. That does not mean that we won't face unavoidable polarization. Think with me about December 7th, 1941. The anniversary of Pearl Harbor was this week. You might think about 9-11 because many have said that was the Pearl Harbor of another generation. You know what most people talk about after those two events? They talk about a sense of coming together, a sense of unity, a sense of a realization that although some might want to continue division and unnecessary polarization, that's not good for the whole 
We want to come together. Wouldn't it be beautiful in the Christmas season of 2020 if our final statement to this incredibly difficult year was that we have come to share the good news with the poor, to lift the burdens of the oppressed and set them free, to give sight to the blind, to set the prisoners free, to make sure that our neighbors, our friends, and even those we may have thought of as foes, enemies, make sure that when they come in contact with our life, like Jesus came in contact with that woman, that they will know that God has come to help. I want to thank you so much for joining us for the Love First podcast this evening. I wanted us to have a word of encouragement, a word of direction, something to sink our teeth into as we go through this Christmas season, that rather than giving way just to despair, as we recognize despair, we also become people who share comfort, grace, hope, and help.